0: There's something about church architecture that is uniquely special and uniquely important. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer. So when we talk about the true, the good, and the beautiful... It's easy for us as Christians, I think, to recognize that our worship of God should be true and that it should be good. But so often, I think that we conceptualize beauty as something that is maybe a bonus. We don't need it for worship, but if it's there, great. If it's not, oh well. To correct this common misunderstanding, I'm here with a an old friend of mine, Brother Irenaeus Dunlevy, O.P. A Dominican friar who I knew from our days back in Washington, D.C. He's still there at the Dominican House of Studies, and he has a unique history and insight. So, first of all, Brother Irenaeus, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Joe, for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So, if you would, uh, would you share a little bit about what you were doing before you entered religious life?
1: Sure. I studied architecture at Virginia Tech, uh, ended up getting my bachelor's and master's there, and then Three years in the Northern Virginia region, I practiced as an architect, uh, doing residential and then sacred architecture as well, so doing master planning and uh, church design.
0: So you were actually designing churches before you. I was. Now, how long have you been with the Dominicans?
1: Uh, I entered back in 2013 for my novitiate. I professed vows uh, in 2014, Uh, so I've been a Dominican friar for four years now.
0: Has that impacted how you understand art, beauty, architecture, and the like?
1: Yeah, the formation, uh, especially the intellectual formation uh, I've received in the Order of the House of Studies, has uh, really clarified um, some things in my mind as far as uh, the different design philosophies I encountered um, studying at Virginia Tech, understanding the way the modern world has viewed beauty and its necessity. Sort of what place it has uh, within our kind of built environment and the world of architecture and urban design, and so it's it's, uh, it's given me uh, a set of you know some jargon, but just uh, some philosophical understanding as to what's uh, well what's happening. How did we get here? So how
0: similar or how different uh, were these two worlds? Like what were you taught about architecture and about beauty? when you were studying to be an architect, maybe what did you see on the ground? And what, did, what have you, what's been the Catholic approach you've seen articulated in your time
1: as a Dominican? So something that drew me to architecture uh, was the balance of sort of the arts and sort of a kind of rational or mathematical geometrical understanding of things. And so I understood that part of it, but the things that inspired me uh, was like Mont Saint-Michel, uh, in Brittany for those of you that don't know it's a it's a beautiful old monastery i think it's over a thousand years old now um, but it's built on an island uh, which has a the tide um, that comes in and so this monastery sort of rises from this rock uh, into a spire and it's it's almost mystical it you know it's it, it it's almost like something out of the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm -hmm. It's so um, well done. um, And it's so inspiring and beautiful that it has a otherworldly quality. And so works of Gothic architecture really inspired me to go into architecture. But when I got to Virginia Tech, it was was very different. One of the stories I like sharing is that my first day uh, in studio design, Uh, So that's really where we're experimenting and figuring out how it is uh, one should design. The first assignment, we're given a 12-inch square of bug screen. So you sit down at your stool. You look at this gray thing staring back at you. And then your professor tells you to construct a work of play. And you've never seen a work of play made out of bug screen (laughs) So uh you start filling around and I think the first thing I made was I, I tried to make a geometrical form out of it mm-hmm. you know like a pyramid mm-hmm. so I had my my understanding of like okay design is like accomplishing things that you, you map out and and you make the material kind of fit that plan and I quickly learned this is not what the exercise was about what the exercise was about was how does the material bend? How does the material stretch? Uh, how can you cut the material? Uh, can bug screen hold a sharp line like a piece of paper? No. And so the idea from the school's philosophy is that, you know, paper, bug screen, bricks, wood, are different materials with different qualities. And what you can do with them are different as well. And so kind of this lesson with constructing a work of play was like really feeling the material and seeing what it does and learning that in design, you can always do something more. And you're never done. You just choose to stop. And so you can see it's, it's we're really beginning from a a different set of principles. It's not what is a great work of architecture? What inspires you? It's really a, an experiment with, what is this material in front of me? What can it do?
0: So you're sort of starting from the bottom up rather than starting with the end in view.
1: Exactly. And so with this philosophy and you're moving forward, and it's all very exciting and fun and, and interesting, but I'm really you're really being programmed to uh, see architecture differently, um, see it kind of from a new foundation And uh, over time, it was sort of, you, you don't look to history so much as something that can inform your present day design, but you look at the material you have in front of you, and you try to almost do something new, or do something in response to the material, rather than what your predecessors or ancestors had done before. So there's
0: no sense of carrying on the tradition artistically or architecturally, necessarily, or...
1: Right. For the most part, I'd say, except for anything done um, after the modern intervention, there is a sense of tradition, except it begins in the 20th century.
0: (laughs) Very young traditions. Right. So let's contrast that then with more of this Catholic-informed view. Now, as a Dominican, you've gotten a lot of St. Thomas Aquinas. Can you share with listeners what, what Aquinas thinks beauty is and what its attributes are?
1: yeah so aquinas has not an extensive complete uh treatment of what beauty is uh, but he does have a lot of uh, key definitions and uh, sort of philosophical distinctions made within beauty uh, anybody who wants to read about what saint thomas thought about beauty can go to thinkers like jacques maritain or uh, umberto echo as well there's a lot of 20th century uh debate over kind of a a Thomistic understanding of beauty and how it really how it fits in with the transcendentals But the basic definition that Thomas gives is that beauty is that which delights when seen So it delights um, so here we're talking about creatures who can uh, sort of be changed from you know Not being delighted to being delighted and something outside of them delights them when he says When seen, uh, quickly we think of, you know, works of art or beauty in nature that this sort of visual, visual, you know, sense beauty, uh, which is is, does delight us. Um, But he's he's also thinking not so much of, you know, sensual vision, but intellectual vision as well. So for St. Thomas, beauty is something of the intellect. And sort of when it's seen, it's, it's apprehended, and there's an overflow from the intellect into the lower parts of the soul that sort of delight. Anybody uh, who's experienced contemplation knows knows something about this.
0: Uh, you know, a great professor who also talks about this, a former sculptor, well, still sculptor, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, talks about it as that which is seen by the mind's eye, which uh. isn't explicitly in Thomas's definition, right. but that notion of delighting uh, it does connect something more than just the eye. The eye doesn't have the capacity of itself uh, to delight, so there should be something better understood. And in this way, it's not just visual. You can have beautiful music, you can have a beautiful idea, and, and so forth.
1: Right. No, yeah, that's a very good yeah definition of it. Now, moving f- moving from that um, that definition of beauty, that which delights when seen, uh, Thomas also talks about the properties of beauty, and they're they're threefold. There are three of them: uh, their wholeness, harmony, and then he uses a Latin word, which is can be translated a few different ways, claritas. So you can think of something that's very clear, something radiant. Really, what's happening is what that which communicates what it is. Uh, the wholeness is is something. It's it means that something that's sort of its own. It has its kind of own being. Uh, it's not, uh, it's this one and not that one. And so it has an integrity sort of there of its own. The harmony is, it. it's made up of parts. And so these parts fit together at the service of that wholeness, at the service of that integrity. So they're not in, the parts are not in conflict with one another, Not they're not competing for attention, but they're They're fitted and knitted together in such a way as to create that
0: wholeness. And then, I mean, you can imagine there uh, just kind of the disharmony. If you had a symphony in which everyone was just told, play your instrument the best way you know how, with no regard for anyone else or how they were playing or, you know, how is this going to work together? It would be terribly ugly, even if every individual part was beautiful.
1: Yeah, when the violins are competing with the trumpets, there's just a cacophony that comes from it. Right. The uh, the last one, claritas, is uh, is a really important one, and it I think I think this one is the most lost in the modern world because it has within it a, somewhat of a notion of an essence. Now, I mean, works of art don't have essence in the same way you and I have essence. Like we have a human essence, we share human nature. Uh, things we create like artifacts or works of art uh, they don't have an essence that really comes from God but we can come to know something of the way it should be. you know um, Somebody who's really familiar with you know violins knows when a violin is really a violin. It creates the right sound, it has a beautiful shape. Uh, it has like an integrity, it fits into the hand well, it sits, you know, upon the crook of the neck in the right way. It has a great capacity uh, to play any, you know, any piece you know, from Vivaldi to Bach, you name it. So there's a, there's a sense in which uh, someone who's making a violin can sort of make it in a more perfect way. And that sort of sense of perfection And the closeness that something has to that perfection, the more, the more claritas it has.
0: So a violin should be recognizably a violin. Exactly. There's a game that Tony Eslin, Anthony Eslin likes to play. He he mentioned this at least once before when he's driving with his kids, which is prison factory school. So (laughs) as they're out driving and they see on the horizon, a kind of brown uh, featureless building, while they're still a long way off, they want to guess what it is. Now, the fact that you cannot reliably tell apart prisons, factories, and schools, there's an implicit critique there, because each one should be, hopefully, conveying a different message about what it is, what it stands for. And if not, if the message we want to send with our schools is these are factories or prisons, that's a, a seemingly a horrible message. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the role of beauty, um, in the life of the church, and the role of the beauty in, in the Christian life. And I want to specify here that we don't want to talk about some of the most obvious uh, types of beauty. We don't want to talk about music here. Uh, we don't want to talk about sacred art. Those are well worth uh, an investigation. But I want to focus specifically just on your forte, just on architecture so i guess where do we begin um, with a discussion
1: on how we do architecture beautifully for someone to know the beauty of an uh, architecture they have to experience it first and so that can be quite a you know difficulty because you can you can put on a piece of music you put on headphones or you can go see a painting but to find a, a beautiful work of architecture you have to travel Mm-hmm. They're not as readily available unless you, you know, live in, you know, a metropolitan city with some great works of architecture. Um, or, if, you know, you live in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a sense of kind of developing a taste for it, yeah. kind of experiencing it. Um you know, I, I remember when, when I uh, studied in Europe a little bit for while I was in architecture uh, school. And... I was in uh, a Baroque church, it's uh, fairly fairly well known, um, it was for the Trinitarian order, it was dedicated to St. Charles Borromeo, and uh, I believe it was Borromini who, who designed it, and it's just very white, the walls are pushing and pulling, it's it's a very small sculpted uh, work of architecture that has at the top of it a white dome with a dove you know, representing the Holy Spirit and light sort of pours in to this white space with all this undulation. It's very beautiful. And, uh, as I'm sort of sitting there studying it and, and sketching, a man came in from off the street and he immediately gasped. And I look and he's, he's clutching sort of his chest and just looking up, you know, he wow. had, he had experienced the beauty of that architecture, you know, so it's, how many of us can um, can share that experience? It's something we have to kind of find um, and look for. We really have to pay attention to what's come before us.
0: I've shared this quote in a, at least one previous episode of this podcast, but I have to share it again in light of what you just said. Edgar Allan Poe uh, talks about what he calls the immortal instinct for beauty that he says is deep within the spirit of man. He says we have still a thirst unquenchable to allay which he has not shown us the crystal springs this thirst belongs to the immortality of man it is at once a consequence and an indication of his perennial existence it is the desire of the moth for the star it is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us but a wild effort to reach the beauty above so it's an ecstatic He talks about it as an ecstatic prescience of the glories beyond the grave. That there's something in a real encounter with authentic beauty that can move us profoundly because it gives us this powerful hint of heaven, whether we recognize it or not. And I think uh, an artist like Poe is probably someone who who would have a, a more honed appreciation and sense of this. As you said, some of these types of beauty really do take uh, properly formed sensibilities. I'm sure there are people who walked into that church and felt nothing. People who just didn't, you know, (laughs) they were looking at their phone or they were doing other things and it just didn't click, as it were. But for the people who have that encounter and maybe who are more uh, prepared for that encounter, there does seem to be something that can't be ascribed just to an animal nature. You know, animals never have that encounter. You never see a dog walk in and just say wow you know or just like
1: have any sense
0: of awe or wonder and beauty so there's something deeply human um but pointing
1: beyond even this life there's a there's a few things that that quote kind of brings to my mind and that's the way uh you know saint thomas talks about you know the true belongs to the appetite of the intellect and the truth is, is, is something we sort of take into ourselves. So there's this sort of like inward, you know, formation going on. And then the good is, is that which is the, um, the desire of the will. Like the will desires the good and the will moves out of itself um, towards that object. So there's this ecstatic movement. Mm-hmm. And beauty really has kind of both of those. And it really has a power because of the aspect of delight, we tend to do things we delight more. Uh, we give more time to them. We find it easier to pursue them. So when you, when you encounter beauty, um, there is this sort of uh, ecstatic movement towards it. There's also this contemplative inward appreciation for what's before you. Um, but there's also kind of a, a fire there there's a there's a sense of really wanting to get to it um, now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've seen situations where people have nearly driven off the road because of a beautiful sunset. Right. And that's a, almost a very literal, like their whole body seems to be like moving towards like this mad drive as if you could just turn off the road towards the sunset and just be with it forever. There's this, There's something in that. Yesterday, I was on a, a rosary walk and was originally walking away from a gorgeous sunset. And then when when we realized this, we we turned around and just went 180 degrees in the direction. <laughs> so we'd be able to enjoy it more as we prayed. There was something, you know, that, that ecstatic quality that was actually helping, um, I think, the quality of the prayer. So, yeah, it, it just seemed like there's something very deeply human about that. Now, specifically, when we're talking about the church... There's something about church architecture that is uniquely special and uniquely important, I would say. And I, I say this for a couple of reasons. First, because in the Old Temple, we see that God went to great lengths uh, in designing it in a very particular way. So, if you go back in Scripture, 1 Chronicles 28, verses 11 to 19, is David giving Solomon uh, the plans of the temple? And it's worth going to read it because the level of detail is stunning. I think it would be lost somewhat just reading it. But he says things like this. He says, uh, David gave Solomon his plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of the Lord, the treasuries of the dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all golden vessels for each service, the weight of silver vessels for each service, the weight of the golden lampstands and their lamps, the weight of gold, and so on. Everything is finely calibrated, detailed, planned and plotted out before one step can be taken. And if you remember the context, David desperately wanted to be the one who built a temple for God. He asked to, and God told him no. David was a man with unclean hands. He'd shed blood. He'd had this adulterous relationship. He wasn't spiritually prepared uh, to build the temple. So instead, God lets him just hunger for it and plan out all of this incredible detail with it. So that's the temple in the Old Testament. That's If you want to say the past, well, let's talk about the future. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, when you see the heavenly temple, it's just as intricate. It talks about all of the different jewels, you know, the jasper, the gold, not a jewel, but you get what I'm saying, the sapphires, the emeralds, and so on. And there's all of these details. There are exact measurements and everything. And so the overall vision conveyed is something that is beautiful. It's carefully planned out. And that is expressing something theologically in its beauty. So all of these examples, it's ornate. It's large. It's beautiful. It seems to me something is being said about God and about the the nature of worship in both the temple in the past, temple in the future which I would speculate uh, should inform how we think about temples of the present.
1: Absolutely. I mean, in this, um, in the chronicles and in, in the listing of the details, the architectural plans of the temple, you, you begin to realize God is very interested in what his dwelling place should look like, what should be in it, uh, how it should be formed. And this is, this is good because we needed this. Solomon, as wise as he was, could not uh, discern by his own efforts what the dwelling place of God should be. You know, he's he's known for his wisdom. He's known for having the plan. But when you're going to plan the house for he who is wisdom itself, uh, how does one find a suitable place for wisdom? In architecture, you know, if we're going to design for the claritas of a certain building, we have to go to that which is known. And so in designing a library, right? We, we know you know, whether it's the scrolls of the ancient times or the books of today, we know we need something of shelves and we have to have space to walk between the shelves to find them. We have to order them in a certain way. We need places for them uh, to be read. We need places for uh, workers to sort of categorize where books are in the place. And so all of, the, all of these like little pieces become known and the, the architect can begin to form them and shape them in such a way that the library sort of emerges from these known pieces. But with the temple, it's unknown. And so when we begin to design sacred architecture for the God who is wisdom itself, uh, we need to listen to him And so what we see in the temple plans is the starting point for what the temple should be. We begin to see what the claritas of the temple is because God himself has given it to us.
0: So when we talk about church architecture, I know that there are a lot of ways you can sort of subdivide types of architecture, you know, Baroque, Rococo, Gothic, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the ways that I've heard you describe is the distinction between a, a vertical and a horizontal orientation in the churches. Is that? Am I getting that distinction right?
1: Yeah. So I think this is an important distinction for the church that we see today. Um, and I think these two categories sort of um, go above sort of the stylistic categories we were talking about with uh, Rococo and uh, Gothic and, and others of that sort. And uh, I would like these two because I think they come from really two approaches to the tradition of sacred architecture. And I think we can even apply it to two approaches to the revelation given to Solomon and the, the temple plans.
0: Okay, I'm fascinated to hear this. Okay. So let's, let's take one at a time. You want to start with horizontal? Can so, you tell me what does it mean to say something is a
1: horizontally oriented church? Sure. So um, a horizontally oriented church... Um, would be a church that's really trying to get at intimacy with God, that's really trying to emphasize that we are a family uh, in the Lord, that we've been baptized and we've become children of God. It focuses heavily on community, and this is all within the context of the liturgy and the Mass. So this is the the nave, the worship space.
0: Explain what the nave is for those who don't know.
1: So nave is, yeah, that's a, a... you know, four-letter word for the uh, the place where the congregation sits. That's not the sanctuary. It's not the holiest place within the church. Uh, Is where pilgrims came and knelt, you know, as Father said, mass in the sanctuary back in the Middle Ages. Uh, it was actually said that the naves of the old churches were sloped to the door so that uh, once the pilgrims left, buckets of water could be brought in and dumped on the floor <laughs> to get out all of the filth. Wow. And it would drain towards the door and out of the church. Wow.
0: Okay, so that's the name. I'm sorry to interrupt. So, I just wanted to make sure that everyone understands. I'll, <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll try to behave with the architectural wow. terms. <laughs> so in horizontal worship, there's a sense that uh, there's a sense that we come to worship um, uh, God as a community and sort of alongside one another. And there's sort of a, a sense in which the space is articulated in a rather familiar way. So it would have domestic architecture kind of dominating the space. So things like carpet, things like wood, uh, maybe more of a lower ceiling even. Mm-hmm. And so sort of a very comfortable space
0: starts so it's like more like a strange room in your house right yeah like a totally different type of building
1: exactly now vertical architecture uh or vertical worship is i think the great example of this is a gothic cathedral because of the vertical lines the the movement is is upward the the ceiling is high and you know, you have hard surfaces like stone. So when you when you walk in, even the sound is different, right? Mm-hmm. There's an echo there. There's you you not only see the space, but you hear it
0: as well. It's funny you mention that because it's so distinctive. If I'm not mistaken, one of the sound settings in GarageBand for iTunes or for uh, whatever the Apple computers is that there is a cathedral echo setting because it's such a known echo right? that you can just, you know, you hear it and it sounds like you're in a cathedral. That's a remarkable sort of recognition of that thing that I think we can often overlook. Did you notice that not just the space, but also the sound is different
1: here? Right. And like that sound, even though it's in GarageBand, when you hear it, it immediately connects you with sacred worship.
0: Right. It's derivative there. It's, I mean, it's kind of an homage, infinite explicitly. Yeah. Whereas it seems like with the horizontal worship, the church becomes an homage to the living room or to the den or to... Exactly. Uh, ...the family
1: table. Exactly. And I, and I think this is where we can sort of look at these two approaches with respect to this revelation from First Chronicles with the plans being given to Solomon. Because the Gothic cathedral and many other uh, works of sacred architecture are are really drawing from the Jewish temple. So why do I say that? Well, there's, there's a sense that the space inside should be different than that which is outside, you know, and so that you have that great reference to the garage band, you know, app of the, the cathedral echo, that echo belongs to a, a sacred worship, um, whereas the reverb or the echo of the say horizontal worship church that tends to be more like a living room, it doesn't have like a a real distinction from that which is outside. It just maybe the furniture is a, is a little different, but the, even the sound is commonplace,
0: and of course, this gets to the fact that the Jews were obsessed with holiness. Holy in the sense of being set apart and having a sharp distinction between the sacred and the profane. That there are some things that are holy and just for God. and There's some things that are commonplace. You know, we often, I think we look at, for example, Jewish dietary laws or the fact that Jews couldn't wear mixed cloth. And we think that seems like a weird and kind of arbitrary restriction. But the point was that in every moment of their life, Distinctions were being made. This is in, this is out. This is sacred, this is profane, and you don't mix them. You don't mix your cloth. You don't uh, put beef and cheese on the same plate. The sort of thing which we view as maybe over the top was really, I think, uh, pedagogical, of really hammering home that there are holy things and there are regular things and maybe even unclean things. And so it sounds like what you're saying, if I'm getting you right, is that a lot of horizontal worship in trying to capture the intimacy and familiarity of the family home, functionally profane. Like it serves to profane, the holy by treating it as totally
1: indistinct. Right. It, it doesn't have the proper understanding of what the sacred and the profane is. And, and this distinction is actually architectural. The profane was really the, the gate outside of the temple. And the sacred was passing through the gate in the temple. So what is sacred and what is profane is more or less distinguished by a wall. Wow. Yeah. So to be in the first court was to be in a sacred place. And so there's a series of spaces that you pass into where you leave behind that which is profane and enter into something sacred or even more sacred. And even
0: with the holy water font, for example, there's this almost ritual cleansing as you pass from the outside world into this sacred space.
1: Oh, and it's exactly why the baptismal font had always been at the, the front of the church, because in the same way that architecturally you pass from the plaza outside the church into, uh, can we say, nave of the church, <laughs> you're, you're passing into something more sacred, right? There's, there's a transition from the profane to the sacred. What happens at baptism? right yeah. you become you were no people but now you are god's people yeah. you you become something sacred something consecrated to god that belongs to god and that's really what sacredness is it's something that belongs to god so to place the baptism the baptismal font at the door of the church the entrance of the church is to say this is something which moves from the profane to the sacred it's From being outside the church to inside the church.
0: So it's being made sacred. It's being sanctified, if you will, which is, of course, exactly what happens. Exactly. In baptism. So what are some of the other aspects of vertical worship, maybe architecturally? You know, we've got the upward lines. We've got the hard materials. We've got these distinct kind of echoes.
1: I think it has more of an appreciation for contemplation within worship. Uh, typically pews are in rank and file. So Mm -hmm. we don't stand and face our neighbor, but we stand next to our neighbor and face the same thing. So that would be the sacrifice at the altar or our Lord present in the Eucharist in the holy tabernacle. And this facing uh, the altar or the tabernacle is, is a facing of our Lord, and it's a progression of spaces so even the perspective right with all those columns and even though it's vertical the perspective sort of forces our vision and our focus on the most sacred the most holy place within the church you know the place where God dwells and in that way it's pointing us to that which is the object of our contemplation, which is God.
0: So uh, two quick stories here. One, uh, a mutual friend of ours was babysitting a child, uh, a Protestant child, and went into a Catholic church to pray. And the kid goes over and points to the tabernacle and says, what is that? And and the kid says, like, it looked like a treasure chest, and then he imagined treasure was in there. And he was like, that is an architectural win." Like That is exactly the kind of <laughs> exactly. reaction you want even a small child to have. It, it created a sense of wonder, uh, inquiry, all centered around the Eucharist. Well, that's a good example. The bad example, um, I recently heard a story from a friend of a friend that she'd been traveling, and I won't mention the diocese, but she goes into a church, and it was just kind of a nightmarish liturgical experience from... start to finish, but one aspect of it was that she couldn't find the tabernacle anywhere. It wasn't just that it didn't look beautiful, that she couldn't find it until they were going to return the Saboria with all the leftover hosts, and she said they opened this strange-looking wooden column that she described as looking like a tree trunk in the very corner of the church. Needless to say, it had not inspired the same awe. There was no sense of Jesus is the center of this place. And it probably isn't a coincidence that a place with that sort of architecture, that sort of tabernacle, had the kind of uh, liturgical experience that she described of Of it just didn't feel at any moment like she was even at Mass. And she literally had to wonder if what she was experiencing was even a valid liturgy. I mean, those kind of uh, things... Obviously, there can be exceptions. You can have a very beautiful Mass in a very ugly church or a very ugly Mass in a very beautiful church. But it does seem like what you were saying about vertical worship. It tends towards, it inclines towards uh, a certain view. And a certain view, not just of of God, but of the Mass and of the role of the Eucharist in the Mass.
1: Right. Patrick Swayze in Dirty Dancing says, nobody (laughs) puts baby in a corner. Why is that? Because... You don't put important things in the corner nobody puts Jesus in a quarter right where where would you put the most important thing in the church if not front and center where everyone can see and face it it doesn't make sense for a church to be working against like devotion to the Holy Eucharist which the Second Vatican Council says is the source and summon
0: yeah absolutely so what are maybe some practical takeaways listeners today might, might wanna walk away from this episode
1: with? Well, can i give them homework yeah okay so i think if you haven't tasted beauty in an architectural work in a, a beautiful church and really been inspired find a church go on a pilgrimage ask somebody what's the most beautiful church in this area and then go there and pray maybe go there for a mass and then you know, not to distract you from the mess, but pay attention to how is the architecture directing my prayer? How, how am I being affected by the beauty which is present here? And then seek that out in other places. Thank you. I think that's a, a
0: great practical little homework assignment for all of our listeners. No one's grading you on this, of course. Let's close in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit
1: as it was in the beginning, is now, never shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the
0: Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more, or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.